All right, welcome to episode 26, first generation bow hunter. Here with Steve Bailey. What's up? You're from New Mexico. Well, I'm from New Mexico. We're both from, you're currently in New Mexico. Yep. What's hunting like there? It's so complicated. When you get a tag, <laughs> New Mexico's very good at making sure you get a quality hunt when you get a tag. Fair. But it's tough. But it's crazy, though, there. Like, you wait years, don't you? You're nodding your head right now, just for oh, listeners. Oh, yeah, <laughs> listeners can't see that. So I, I've hunted about 15 years in New Mexico. I've drawn a deer tag three times. Goodness. Utah's getting terrible, though. Like, the last few years, it's not great. You just put in for Utah with me. Yep. And we got goose eggs. I drew some points. <laughs> <laughs> Which ought to help in the future, right? Hey, when you go out in the field to go after those, will you call me? Yes. <laughs> I got a I got a point tag in my pocket. A point tag. Oh. I'm gonna need some uh some heavy lifters to bring it back in. <laughs> I got an e bike, bro. I got you. Um, I'm here with Steve Bailey. So Steve is my brother in law and I don't hesitate saying this, but you are one of the reasons why I probably harvested these last few years. Have I told you that before? I don't think so, but you're welcome. Well, I wanted to do that live now. Tell you tell you how. Anyway. Glad I could help you. I usually just take my bow for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm here with Steve. We're in southern Utah. We're down here for a little get-together with the family. And did some hiking, some fun stuff. We're actually sitting in these epic chairs. So, little gear shout out, Nemo. My wife just took a photo of us sitting out here. You gotta check out these. I think they're called the Starlight, Star Bright, Stargaze, Recliner Luxury. Oh my gosh, you found the name right? Oh, there it is. All right, they're like four hundred dollars each, but they're super worth it, and they make good for podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh my gosh, I'm so comfortable right now. Okay, so go buy that. I don't have a code for you though, so you're gonna have to pay full price. Worth it. Steve, you've done some out of state hunts though too, like Arizona and other things. Yep, I did a Arizona deer hunt last fall and harvested a nice four by four by buck there. Um, I'm just starting to do more applying in other states. I'm just stepping into that, trying to figure out how to apply to other states because New Mexico is so t difficult to draw. Yeah, you're kind of like, I got to go other places. Cost-wise, New Mexico is a no-brainer. I put in for eight species this year, and I drew two tags. I drew a Barbary tag and a Javelina tag, which you can also buy over-the-counter, so that's not that great of a draw. The Barbary sheep, that'll be a fun one for me. Um, everything else, big goose egg. Can you get the sheep one, you think? Yes, I've hunted the unit one other time. We got on sheep, and I know where I can find some. So, and this is archery. This is this is rifle. That's rifle. This okay. is rifle. Steve, you're but you're a first generation bow hunter, legit. I am. What got you into it, and what age? I started bow hunting when I was probably twenty eight. That's when I bought my first compound bow, but. If I step all the way back, I got my first compound bow 
non-hunting compound bow when I was 20, not 20, sorry, when I was 13 for my 13th birthday. So I've shot archery for years and years and enjoyed that, had a great time with that. Um, but it wasn't until I was in my late 20s when I finally decided I wanted to go hunt. And what made you decide? Like, was it, I mean, you're you're doing rifle before, right? No. So I started no, out you started archery out hunting. Yep. Really? I, I like the concept of being able to have to really be close to the animals and really get there. But what made you, okay, so let's back up then. What made you just jump into archery? That's a big jump. Hunting-wise, yes, but I've been shooting archery for since I was 13 to 28. So that's 15 years I've been shooting archery, but shooting at paper, right, yeah. targets. So for me, I was very comfortable with a bow, and to go out and actually harvest an animal that way was very intriguing to me. I remember, so I grew up in Pennsylvania. I remember when I got my first bow, and this is maybe bad to say this on the on the air, but I physically took my bow out many times in the woods as a 13-year-old, not knowing that there was a license or a process or anything, right? I'm like, I'm going to go find something to shoot at. And never was successful at that. Probably 13-year-old stomping at the woods, not very sneaky and, and very stinky, right? Are we talking like rabbits and stuff? Rab- yeah, oh yeah, yeah, totally oh, rabbits okay. and whatever small things we could come across, right? I remember one time we're sitting in the backyard and my older brother, um, he's like, see if you can hit this basketball. And he slung it across the yard, right? And I pulled back and I hit it in motion. And I was like, wow, that's cool. I could bet I could I bet I could hunt a rabbit with this. <laughs> oh my gosh. But no broadheads. I mean it was just a thirteen year old yeah. with a with a compound bow, an old an old PSC. It was a compound bow. The cams were the small circle com, uh, uh, cams. Sure. It was a used bow my parents bought me for my birthday, and I just shot the heck out of that thing. So you're thirteen years old, Pennsylvania. Let's back it up even more. Why the bow? Why not like a BB gun? Why not something like was there something that inspired bow? The bow was, to me, super accessible. For whatever reason, my parents gave me a bow and a bunch of arrows when I was 13. They didn't give me a gun with a lot of bullets. Okay. <laughs> so at some point, I'm like, hey, I got a bow. Cool. Let's get after yeah. this, right? Well, and you and feel, bows are cool. I mean, and the other thing, too, is like I've enjoyed the early years when I shot. I'm like, oh, I go get my ammo. It's stuck in the target. Yeah. It's reusable ammo. Yeah. No brainer. Yeah. Okay. O- old aluminum shafts, old bow, field points. That was it. And then age 28, what's going on? So somewhere between 13 and 28, of course, life, right? High school, um, oh, getting yeah. into job. And it seemed like when I got to that age, I was finally to the point where I was making enough money as a job that I... And I had a friend, a good friend of mine that was a hunter. I'm like, I don't even know how to do this, right? How do I get involved? How do I get started? So I started putting up in, putting in for hunts with him and his father and his uncle. Um, and we just started hunting, you know. But for the most part, most of my archery hunting has been for elk. Again, because I just haven't drawn out much for deer. And I've, I've had a lot more success drawing out for good hunts with elk. With elk, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, to me... Like, the levels of difficulty, I feel like elk's a little bit higher than deer in different ways. So when you say, like, I'm starting at an elk, I feel like you're standing at the top of a double black diamond. 
not, not that a deer is a green. I'm just, and for those who don't ski, how do you not ski? How do you not understand that reference? I'm sorry. Google it. Just it's there. figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> figure it out. But my personality also has always been, hey, if I'm going to learn how to ski and I do like to ski, okay, I did the green. I did the blue once. Where's the harder one, right? I'm going to figure it out. Just go, yeah. I'm not. I'm not gonna step in, spend a whole bunch of time on the greens for the next two, three years before yeah. I go up. I'm like, okay, I made it, didn't die. Let's try another one. So you're elk hunting. Where are you getting your information of like, how do I do this? So the very first information I got out on elk hunting was interesting. I joined Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and I actually am not a member anymore. But I paid for a couple years for it, and they sent me a book on elk. Nice. It's a hardback book. It's still on my bookshelf, and it's, this is what elk are. This is what they do. This is their habitat. And I bought that, and I read all through it, and my friend's like, oh, that's not going to be helpful to you. I'm like, oh, I think it is. <laughs> that's cool advice. I mean, take a break from YouTube. Go pick up a book. Yeah. Go to a library. And it was one of those things they gave me with my membership, right? I got a yeah. cheap pocket knife and a, and a book on elk. Go to a library. Uh-huh. That's my advice. Yep. They still exist. <laughs> I, I hear they have paper and books and all kinds of good oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. You got sweet old lady behind the counter. Take your information, your data. It's, Give her your data. It's basically free. <laughs> it is. Unless you don't bring the book back, and then they come after you for that 32 cents. I know. And inflation, it's like, dude, it's a rip India. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just think, I think people should go, I think I'm going to go hit up my library this week. I'm just going to find the hunting books. There's something there. So you start out with elk hunting, double black diamond. What was that first hunt like? I mean, do you remember the first hunt? Is that a mashup of hunts? Yeah, over the years, it's probably a mashup, and I don't know that I can pick out um, exact experiences per, like, this is hunt one, this was hunt two, this was hunt three. But I do remember, for sure, hunt one and two, we got into some animals here and there, but it seemed like it was almost magic, right? You'd go out one morning, you're up early, you're out mm-hmm. hiking up, your feet are getting wet because the dew on the grass, and all of a sudden, the the first encounter I ever remember having, there was the three of us walking, and all of a sudden, it, just, it an elk was just in front of us at 30 yards, standing perfectly behind. I mean, he was heading by. Yeah. We just happened to be there. He was heading by. He stopped perfectly behind a huge ponderosa, no shot, ran off. We then hunted that same spot, for the next four days, and never saw another elk. We then came to the point where, like, I think he was just passing by. And it just happened to be, when we were there, he was there, and he was finding, searching for cows, right? This is a September archery hunt. Didn't that mess you up, though? Like, yeah, like it was just here. It's like, oh, it's so easy. <laughs> you just, <laughs> these double black diamonds are easy. Exactly. The thing I found with that, though, is that unlike a deer, which would typically stay within a certain area, a couple miles, you, they're pretty predictable. Elk, you you bump an elk, and they're like four mountains over looking back at you and like laughing at you, right? And they'll never come back, right? Yeah. They just have a different range. They do different things. And so we had to start – I had to start thinking about hunting really where the elk are, not necessarily where they ought to be. Like this this looks great. What do you mean by that? There's the food. There's the trees. There's the stuff. There should be an elk here. Well, they're there. They're not. (laughs) And you can sit there for five or six, seven days and not see an elk, or you can say – they're just not here right now. I got to get over that next peak. I got to get to the next spot, right? How do so. you reconcile with that? Because I think a lot of people, that's I, there's this interesting phenomenon. I talked about the interview with Kendall Card where I'm like, people just sell their bows. They just, they're done. 
So how do you reconcile with, yeah, you got to have boots on the ground, but like you get home from a trip, you're like, I didn't see an animal. So I've got this theory with a bow. I've got one friend, every year he buys and sells a new bow. Uses it for a year, sells it, and buys him a new one. Yeah. He's not making money on the deal. I've got the same bow I've had since 2013, and I can't sell it till I kill a bull with it. I just, it's my mind. I'm like, well, I gotta, I gotta harvest a bull with it. Kendall was like this. He's like, I have to kill five animals until I upgrade my bow. Yeah. What is that? I, I, I got it set up to go shoot a bull elk, and as soon as I have one, then I'll be like, <laughs> okay, we're good to go. That's the cool. other thing that was interesting, and it's, I'm shooting a Hoyt uh, carbon element, great bow. A couple years ago, I went into my local bow shop and said, Hey, if I upgraded, what would I? What would you buy? And I was getting a new string put on it. Yeah. He said, "I'd buy the bow that you have right now." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay." It's like photographers. They're like, the best camera is the one you have with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and now they're going to longer axle to axle bows, um, heavier. That carbon element's small. It fits my frame well. It's light. Uh, I've just carried it a lot of a lot of hours. It fits me. It shoots right. It's dialed in. There's something about the risk involved in my mind of starting over with that. Wow. By the time you get the arrows tuned and all that, it's, just oh. a, it's a lot of effort, right? Because you can buy a new 12-pack of arrows, and your tuning your time to tune is not terrible. Because you're like, oh, I did this last year or two years ago. Yeah. I actually went to – so I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day about the um, – all the arrows you're shooting, the um, oh, kinetics. kinetics. Yeah. I actually went to those last year, and I love them. They they are shooting amazingly well, but it took me a long time to dial them in. Oh, really? I just I, I couldn't get things quite right. I actually went to my local shop and said, I'm just not qu- quite right on this, and they, they set my bow up, and I was, a couple things were off on it. Like you know? paper tuning? Yeah, paper tuning. Oh. And, they, and it found that over the couple of years of the years I've had it, some stuff had just slipped and moved a little bit. And, uh, Imagine that. Yeah. That's me, what... <laughs> me throwing it in the back of the truck, going out the woods, <laughs> bouncing up the road, dropping it here or there, sleeping under trees, whatever you do when you're elk hunting, right? Yeah. Or bow walking. In, in, in most bow of the time. walking. <laughs> bow walking. Sir, have you been bow walking lately? This, this bow is out of tune. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, arrows are funny because I, I, I've i never really gone outside a gold tip. I love them. I just think they're great. And I was like a pure sky forever. Yeah. No, I started Chaos Kinetics and then went to Pierce because I was like, oh, it's thin. It should do amazing things, you know. And then it was funny. They, they tuned my bow, and he showed me the difference between the Pierce's and the Chaos it was night and day. He's like, look how consistent the chaos is. Yeah. It's just things like that. You just you have to spend a little time in the bow shop and a little humble pie. I came from a Beeman. I've been shooting Beemans for years, and I love them. They did really good. It's actually interesting why I went to the, the Chaos Kinetics. It was more about the fact that I was down to like three arrows. Because you, <laughs> you just eventually hit them and you wear them out. I mean... Yeah. It's problems. I'm like, well, I got to get something new. And you talked high, highly about those. And I'm like, okay, if I'm buying all new, let's let's try another set of arrows. And I've been super happy with them for sure. Do you have a good bow shop? I do have a pretty good bow shop. Do you ever have like inside jokes with them or just kind of like banter? Not so much, but the last two times I went in there, that one time I went to get my bow, I couldn't quite get it tuned in. They were amazing. I walked in there and they um, 
they did all this work for me, this kid behind the behind the counter. I went to pay, no wallet. Oh, I didn't man. have a wallet. I'm like, I have no wallet with me. And it wasn't, I just didn't bring it to work apparently that day. I didn't have it. And the guy's like, ah, no worry, just pay next time you come in. Aww, and so then cool. I was worried about it. So like two days later, I'm like, I got to get in there and pay for it. I get in there. Hey, I'm here to pay for the tuning he did. And the, and the, and the, the manager owner there, he's like, eh, don't worry about it. You're good. That's cool. And I'm like, that's just cool stuff, right? You're like, I'll come back to you. I, uh, I, I go to Wild Arrow and they're kind of a, they got a bit of a name for themselves. But my favorite thing to do in there when it's like full of people is I'm like, hey, Jeremiah, you got any of those uh, exploding broadheads? <laughs> <laughs> the tracers in it? Yeah. Dude, I love that, man. And he looks at me like, it, it's funny because I don't know if Jeremiah knows me very well. So it makes it even worse. Um, yeah, I, I'm that guy. I like to have a little fun in the bow shop. Yeah, yeah a good bow shop goes a long way. Hit or miss is a place there in Albuquerque. I live out of, out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they're an yeah. outstanding shop. They've got a huge, huge inside range. They're, they're a cool shop. I just love bow shops. It's like, it's this weird transportation of like busy day, whatever, and then it's like, bam, I can go shoot 300 FPS arrows. At a, like, it's so nice, like right in the middle of town. Yeah, absolutely. This shop where you go back and shoot, so, like, I've been to the one up in Boise there where we've been shooting before, and um, it's just a big open range, right? And you're just shooting. This one has that on the right. It's a huge warehouse. The entire left-hand side has 50 3D animals set up, all staged around each other, and you can sit there and you can shoot at each, any of them you want. It's pretty neat. I never see that at ranges. The 3Ds are always shoved to the side. This is permanently set up on both sides, wow. so you can step in there and you see the big moose in the back, and you got a bear, and you got a javelina, and you got a deer, and um, they do some they do some um, club shooting there, where you can go and score and do that kind of stuff. But it's a pretty neat place. You're talking about dead on archery up in Boise. I've been there with you. Yep. And that place is fun because they actually have this key card access for a fob. It's like what thirty bucks a month, and you can go shoot at one in the morning if you wanted. Go blow off some steam. It's awesome. I think that's a cool idea. Yeah. So let's talk about when you've harvested, when you've made hits, you know, you've connected. What's a what's a hunt that really stands out to you? That's a great question. So you put anybody who's ever bow hunted, if you have done it, you realize all how much you really have to put into to get in there and and be successful. If you haven't, understand that you have to put a lot into it. Um, so over the course of years, again, I've been hunting probably about 15 years. I've harvested, I've shot three elk with my bow, harvested two of those, and those were both cows. So it was a tag, it was an either sex tag. In those hunts, um, we were around animals quite a bit, which was awesome. You know, the longer I've hunted, the better I am at getting in and being around them. Those The two cows that I harvested were just really fun experiences the very first one and and this was the first one and this was probably after five years of elk hunting so it's a long time i'm like eventually it's going to come together right and each year you feel like you're getting closer like okay i I got a little bit closer okay i didn't screw up on that like last year um and this one was a pretty neat opportunity we went through that first couple hours in the morning when they're talking the elk are bugling and a lot of fun and it slowed way down but we ended up being still pretty close to a set of a, a herd of elk that we were working and so my buddy and I, we were just kind of working along, following their tracks, uh, moving slowly. It was that kind of that 10 in the morning time when there's not a lot going on. 
And we just slowly were moving along, and over the course of an hour or two, you'd, you'd catch a rump of a cow going through. And, and, we were, and they were just kind of moving off and going to their, to their bedding grounds. And I uh, came up over this, um, this little hill, and there's a little bit of a, like a six-foot little cliff drop down, and um, I was in front. I stepped up and kind of looked over this edge, and there's a cow looking right back at me. And I'm like, stop, stop, waving my hand for my buddy yeah. behind me to stop. And um, this cow's just looking at me like, what's going on? And I was able to draw and, uh, and, and shoot. Pretty good shot. Um, got into the shoulder a little bit, um, which stopped her from going anywhere. And then I was able to take a second wow. shot second shot, and finish, finish the cow off. Do you feel um, like it was kind of like a doe situation? Because what you're saying, it feels like she kind of had this kind of like how does act, like very curious, yep. and they are not suspicious at all. Is that kind of what happened? This one didn't feel like that, but I have seen that also. This felt like that cow had been split off from the herd, oh. and this cow was like, I need to get with them, and I've got two <laughs> hunters between me and them. That's how it kind of felt like. So so accidentally, we had probably split this cow off of the rest of the herd, and it, and it was looking for for the rest of the herd. Isn't that odd how you just sense that yeah it was just and it just had that look like i'm trying to get worse where you're at and um interesting talking about the difficulty of elk hunting and the miles you travel we probably walked eight miles that morning where i ended up shooting that cow was like 300 yards from the road the gravel road right yeah and so we hiked all the way back around to get the truck drove all the way back but actually packing and that was pretty easy because oh, wow. we had done this huge loop around the the basin that we were in so that was very memorable because that was my first time ever harvesting any animal with a bow. And that was when it's like it came together. They told me it should work this way. They told me you can get there. And this was like, it's there. Had you been around in range with animals much, though? Like, what was your experience before that of like, I've been within 20, 30, 40 yards couldn't pull back or you know what was that like or was that one of your really first that was probably the first time i was within range and pulled back on an animal okay other than that it was always legs through the trees at a distance busting out right because our windows wrong or whatever yeah the other thing that was interesting is um, my buddy i hunt with is actually a very successful deer hunter he's not been a uh, archery He's not been a very successful archery elk hunter, so that was the first elk I was around that was harvested with a bow, even amongst the group that I was hunting with. So I wasn't even there when someone else harvested something, and I got to see how they did it and got in there, right? Wow, see, I mean, it was like kind of flying solo. My response to myself was, oh my gosh, it worked. (laughs) They said it would, but it did. (laughs) That book. It's that, that, that Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation book. <laughs> exactly. Dang. Exactly. So that so that was very memorable. The next um, the next elk I shot was a was a nice big five by five, and it was one that um, mid afternoon sitting on some water, elk came in. Actually, I'd fallen asleep, and I heard some rustling, and I kind of looked up, and there's two big bull elk right like. 40 yards from me I'm like oh, oh, oh. you know and I was, I was hunting with another guy who was a young kid that was uh, my buddy's nephew and I'm like tapping him shh get up get up shh don't wake up though and he sat up and we're both sitting there um, I was so nervous on that that was the first bull I'd ever been within range of I pulled back and I shot it right over his back oh man they both busted out yeah ran 50 60 yards stopped and walked back down to the water hole and I got a second shot at the bull what 
I know. They both came back in. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So by that time, I had a chance to get my breath, pulled back, felt like it was a good shot. It was actually ended up being at 47 yards, so it was a little bit far. Um, looked like a good shot. Um, we ended up tracking that bull for about two days, oh, a lot man. of hiking, and then the blood trail just finally dried up. And that was heartbreaking, right, to know that you shot it. In my mind, as I go back and go, and reviewing the anatomy of the animal, I believe I was just above the lungs and below the spine. And we just never found a lot of blood. It was just a drop here, a drop there. And we were gridding it out on our hands and knees for hours along the trail. Just And it's like, oh, here's a drop on a, on a piece of a blade of grass, right? Oh, and here's a drop on the edge of a pine bough as, as it brushed by. Um, later in that day, that was mid mid or like probably one in the afternoon, later in that day when it was almost dark, we found a spot where it bedded and then got up and left, and it was just a very small blood, very small blood puddle there. And, and so I'm fairly confident the elk lived to see another day. I'd actually like to go hunt the area again. I haven't drawn that tag again because I'd love to shoot that bull and find my arrow that I shot from before. You think it broke off, you know? I don't know. I never found the shaft. I never found anything about it. Yeah. So that's heartbreaking, right? Because we don't want to, we don't want to injure an animal. We want to make an ethical shot. We want to make sure that we do our job right. And it's heartbreaking when I know I didn't. And I think like people can hit the the, the circle. You know, they're hitting their foam target. But you mentioned the anatomy. That seems so glossed over. I mean. That's a good one to really slow down and check in with the anatomy and. How's the difference of the anatomy of a deer versus an elk? For me, a deer and elk to, are very much scaled up bigger, and I think those match. But I was watching something the other day, and I've never bear hunted. I'd like to. Um, I just have never got into doing that yet. And um, the show I was watching, they were talking about the, the bear anatomy is just a little different. And I don't remember exactly what they said, but it makes me think, i got to go look at that before I go actually try and hunt something. The way the bear sits and everything, that just puts the lungs in a little bit different spot. Well, man, I think... Uh, you know, I did that episode about my bear encounter and this bear is up on the hind legs kind of clawing at me, not clawing at me. I mean, we're, we're 20 yards away, but, you know, standing up and I'm sitting here and I've got a gun pointed at it and I'm like, where am I going to point at this thing? <laughs> I, <laughs> just, I was like, where's ground zero? Uh, right about there. I, I mean, I didn't know. This sounds okay for for like confessionals, right? <laughs> I didn't know what side of the body that the heart was on. I just so you know you talk about like bear safety and stuff. It's like, geez, know the anatomy. Yeah, and they're generally all creatures generally are. You know, you got a heart, you got lungs, you got yeah. a liver, you got those parts and pieces. But where do they really sit? And I really that on that elk, when I go back and look in my mind, I I can picture where that arrow hit. And when I overlay that with one of those little, you know, one of those little anatomy charts online, I was high. I was just high. I don't think I got any lung. There wasn't enough blood, and I wasn't, and I was below the spine. Interesting. The the second cow I shot, I was actually shooting from above because it, it, she was downhill from me. And I actually came into the lung, but I also clipped her spine because of the angle was steep enough down, and she didn't go anywhere. She just oh, she right. was down right away because, I mean, her bottom legs they were there's at you could tell it hit the, the spinal cord because she just she went maybe ten feet pulling with her her front feet you know before she expired, but um, so it is interesting that anatomy and going back to your comment of shooting at a paper animal a paper target. 
I guarantee you, most of the time you get out there, you're not going to have that animal standing. Okay, I've posed <laughs> per the target in the <laughs> the Google image, right? Am I close enough? <laughs> and so, yeah, am I close? Enough? And so then you have to start thinking about, okay, where am I going to place this? Yeah. Um, and a good bit of advice that I've always heard is aim for the far shoulder as they're quartering away, quarter, you know, because then you know you're going to go be going through those lungs, right? right. But you got to think about all that when you're out practicing. Yeah, and yeah, when people shoot too much paper, too much foam. That's why I asked too. Even like back to what was your interactions with animals before, and then, and I think like telling people like try to just get yourself into those situations, and maybe you're not hunting, you know, maybe you're just glassing or you know whatever. But those interactions have to happen because the emotional rush that happens is it'll knock you on your butt yeah so your father first taught me how to fly fish and he had a statement which sounds a little silly but i'm going to say it here he said 90 percent of the fish are in 10 percent of the water and if there's no fish there there's no fish there i've used that so many times when i've been hunting to say if there's no animals here there's no animals you have to get to where the animals are it sounds a little simplistic but it's true and so part of the last 10, 15 years is trying to learn how to find where the animals are and understand where they're going to be. One of the funnest things I had this last fall with that deer hunt, and this was the first buck I've ever taken, is I've tried a lot, and this was the first time that it worked like they say it should work. Mm-hmm. I followed the rules. I did the right steps, and that deer came out where it was supposed to come out. Didn't know I was there. I was able to take a shot, and the deer didn't go five feet from where I shot Jeez. it. Right? It was a rifle hunt. I know this is not a rifle podcast. It's okay. We'll allow, we'll allow it <laughs> this time. The concept is still you have to be where the animals are, and you have to understand how they work and where they go and what they're going to do. And in this situation, I knew the wind was right. I knew where the... The day before, I had got into where the animals were, so I was in their zone, and I didn't bump them out hard. And I knew, okay, if I go to this point, this peak, the wind's going a certain way, they should be coming out of this arroyo at this spot, and I've got this, you know, 500 yards of arroyo that I'm watching from this little bitty hole in this, it was in Arizona, so everything's pokey there. Ten-foot-tall bushes that that stab you, right? (laughs) And I found on this one hillside a spot where I could sit and I could see this arroyo. And right when they get into that kind of that golden half hour, whatever it is, man, here comes two does, here Jeez. comes a buck, and two other bucks. And it was it was it was picture perfect, but it took me 15 years to get that picture perfect, right? I, a lot of time, a lot of learning, a lot of reading. Um, even the night before, I'm on I'm on websites reading like, what am I missing? What's that other piece? I remember that you called me on that drive home, and you talked about how you just flipped it. I mean, you, you picked up how they were in those arroyos, and you're just like, oh, I'm in the wrong, you know. Oh, oh. Well, and it was interesting because, I've, you know, you read a lot. There's tons of information you can go to find how to hunt. But until you actually try it and fail at it, it was funny because I kind of bumped these deer the day before, and I'm like, why did that not work right? I went back and actually was on a Go Hunt um, article that I'd read a couple times. I went back and read it, and I'm saying, Oh, I'm coming from the wrong direction, right? Glassing from the wrong way in the evening, and um, I flipped that one thing, and it made the difference. I just saw Adam punch himself in the face. It was ah. actually quite funny. It's nighttime. 
and these moth, <laughs> this moth just attacked my nostrils. Moth to the flame. They're just attracted to you, man. I got good nostrils. You've got handsome nostrils. <laughs> Dude, th- it was like trying to make out with me. That was weird. I don't have my wedding ring on. I, I broke it off. I've got one of those silicone ones. Yeah. Uh, Enzo, you have one. It broke. I was going to send it back oh, to you. It broke shoot. the other day, so I had to put my gold one back on because my Enzo so, broke. So I loved not, it, though. I'm not trying to throw shade on Enzo because I actually i have loved them. But if you take a picture of your broken Enzo, they'll just send you a new ring. That's what I need to do. And they're kind of spendy. They're like 40 bucks a ring. But, dude, I was on, like, my fourth copper ring Enzo. I loved it, but I lost it. Oh, it was gone. I think gardening or something. Oh, yeah. Stupid gardening. <laughs> it's a terrible hobby. <laughs> yeah. That's just hard work there. So it goes back. Interesting. Your con- your, your, before you said something about talk to those people that bought a bow, went out, had a tough year, and they sold it and they walked away. My advice is don't do that. You've got to... You gotta put your dues in. How do you get over that though? I think I think part of it is you have to be an optimist. And it's interesting because I've had many, many hunts where I get up each morning and I'm like, I know this is the day I'm gonna shoot something. I just know it. In every bit of who I am, I'm I'm gonna shoot something today. And I get out there and at the end of the day I'm like, dang it, didn't happen. Oh well, that's because tomorrow's gonna happen. And I get up again and do that. And there's been those hunts where I'm not going home without something after you know the five day hunts over. I'm like, well I guess I'm gonna go home without something because that's <laughs> But I'm like, okay, what's the next year's hunt? So there's something about having that learning to do something hard and Feeling that the success isn't just in the harvest. That's true. I definitely learned that. And I'd say from you, you know, from when I'm calling you and I'm like, I didn't see anything. And you're like, well, you know, we, we talk moon phases. We talk temperature. We talk where's the sun facing. Habitat. We yeah. Habitat. Water. No water dry. I mean, I hunt in a lot of places with no water. And it's just like, well. They're going to be somewhere, right? Um, it's funny about that thing you said about my dad, the 90% of the fish are in 10% of the water. It's funny, when you told me that, that was the first time I had received that advice by proxy. Really? From my dad. Did you ever get it from him in person? No. It's pretty good advice. <laughs> yeah, we fly fished a lot. I mean, we grew up, I grew up in Farmington, New Mexico. We were fly fishing on the quality waters, and uh, he never said anything like that. Maybe he did. He probably thought you got it because he told the other boys that along the right. way. But when I started, I was an adult, and I said, I know nothing about this. I said, Bruce, do you mind taking me fishing? Is that out of line for me to ask? He's like, heck no, come over. We get to his garage, and he's got like 40 pairs of waders hanging on oh hooks, every size you can think of, every type of rod. And I'm like set up and we had the best time right and as we're driving up this is summertime and i'm like i i can't imagine those people that would go out fly fishing in the winter they're crazy the next winter guess what i'm out fly fishing with your dad in the winter and loving every bit of it right in the drift boat yeah in the drift boat and of course in the canyon where the quality waters are the sun bounces off right and it's nice and warm snow on the ground but it's still nice fly fishing in mexico is nuts i mean it's just Unbelievable. Well, my first time fly fishing with them, I'm standing in the water in the waders up to my waist, not getting anything, right? Yeah. And I can see two foot long fish like 
inches from me, and I'm po- I'm poking them with the rod, but I can't get them to bite the fly. And your dad's like, they're very educated fish. You got to do it a hundred percent right, and he's right. You do. Dude, they come up to you, and and they're they're like sending messages to their friends. They're like, oh, you want to catch me? Bring it. What you got? He's about to fall in. He's about to fall in. Watch this stick. Here he goes. <laughs> Absolutely. Like so. place of bets. Yeah. Freaking fish. No, that's funny because, yeah, you told me that. And I'm like, that's really good advice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad Steve could deliver it for me. That's so funny. It's true with animals, though, too. It is. 90% of the animals are in probably 1% of the mountain, right? I mean, they are where they are. It's cool with deer, though, because I've heard they don't go outside of two miles from where they were born. I mean, they really kind of stay. Two miles isn't very much. If you think about it. Yeah. The neat thing with deer in that concept is if you really don't bust them out hard, you can come back and hunt them again, right? Um, I think the bucks, especially when it's rutting time, is a little different, right? They're they're moving. They're they're, they're looking for ladies and moving around. But the does, they kind of are where they are. Elk, totally, totally different thing. <laughs> Double they're, bite. They're down. here. Tomorrow they're four miles away. Man. Ten miles away. So if someone wanted to get into elk, it sounds like you lean more elk. I mean, you started there and everything. What are you, I mean, what advice would you give people wanting to start an elk? If you can, find someone to go with. That, I think that it uh, reduces the learning curve a bit, right? Because you can spend a lot of time. And elk hunting, in my experience, has been hard to get a tag when you finally get one. And you've got a limited amount of time to do something with it, right? Um, so really get out there, spend some time. Um, this may sound silly, but there's been many, many hours of me driving back and forth to work with my bugle or my cow call, trying to get the sound right. And people next to me in cars are probably like, what the heck is that guy doing? But the time up in the mountains is probably not the right time to figure out how your cow call works, breaking up the wrapper when you're climbing <laughs> up the mountain. How's this thing work? And reeds are hard. If you can't get them right, the sound's bad, right? It's fun to learn. I love learning how to bugle. That's one of my favorite things. Stick yeah. that thing in your mouth. I was gagging on it at first. <laughs> like, We're going to choke on it, suck yeah, it down your throat. Totally. The most fun I've ever had on an elk hunt yet, and actually this happened has happened twice to me now, where I ended up hunt, hunting with buddies again, and for whatever reason, we kind of do this. It's my turn. It's your turn to go after the animal, right? And so three or four years ago, I was hunting with one of my buddies, and we came up over this this peak. Beautiful morning. Did a did a locating bull call and the the canyon just came alive with bulls. And um we just screaming back and forth at each other and there's one that just was coming right back and forth. And it's really fun when they're when they're bugling and then you cut them off, they get all mad, right? They're like and then and you're you're yelling back and forth at each other. And um my one buddy, I said, Go shoot that bull. I'm gonna sit right here and I'm beating up the tree next to me and, and yelling back and forth at him. He walked straight up to that bull and shot it. I mean, he got within fifteen yards and the bull was yelling at me and he just he walked right in. So some of that multiple people makes that that better, right? And that bull that bull went fifteen yards, died right away. Great lung, great double lung shot. It was down in a hole in the darkest canyon around and and backpacking that thing was out. That was pretty hard. So flash forward to this last September, we had a great hunt in um, Unit 15, uh, not 15, sorry, Unit 16B in New Mexico. Great hunt. We actually backpacked in, took our tents, took everything with us, had a lot of fun. I was able to help my buddy get on another bull in that same way, right? 
right in the middle of the rut. Um, I was able to draw back on a bull twice, and I just couldn't get that stinking bull to come come closer, and he's just behind some stuff. But um, to me, it's a complete success when you're talking their language, interacting with them. The shot is an added bonus. That's exhilarating. When you're doing things and these wild animals that are uncaptivated are like, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, I did it right. That animal thought I was an animal and, and came into me. And the bull that I ended up not shooting because I never could get a shot off, he came. We were both on different peaks. And I it was almost end of the day, last half hour of daylight. And I, I ripped a, a, a cow call. And all of a sudden I hear a bugle way in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, I'm going after him. And I headed down this, and we had been hiking all day, so tired, tired, tired. My one buddy, he climbed into his tent because mosquitoes were killing us, and he's like, I'm done. And I cow called this bull, called back, and I'm like, he's talking to me. And I just worked towards him, and he came closer, and I came closer, and it was the most fun 45 minutes of my life, just having this bull come in. I learned a valuable lesson. I set up in a wrong spot, and um, and because I did not get a shot, and it was it was a nice, big, healthy, mature bull. But at the end of the day, I walked back to my tent with my bow and a nothing but grins. It was dark, pitch black, trying to get back to my tent, and I couldn't have been happier. And I didn't even shoot. It was just something about that time with the animals. Yeah, because we were talking about success and failures, and you're like, well, that's all relative. Because success doesn't mean harvest. It's a great question a hunter should ask. What does success look like? Does success look like I have to have an animal on the ground every time? Well, go to a ranch, right? Go pay the, pay the money to get a guided thing. Yeah. But if you're talking about going out and doing it yourself, self-guided and, and all that, success has to be something other than putting an animal in the freezer. That's a piece of it, but it's not all of it. And to be clear, if we really boil down the amount of time and money I've spent on equipment, gas, whatever, hunting tags, and the amount of animals I've put in the freezer, I'm probably at like $40,000 a pound, right? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. not economical, but... I, it's good meat. It's yeah. it's not um, – there's no hormones. It's very lean. My wife and I, if we can have game, we love that. That's that's our favorite meat to eat, and my wife is a super choosy eater too, just to be, be clear. Right now she's choosing between the deer and the cow we have in the freezer, and she's pulling the deer meat out wow. because it's been processed right. It's We're cooking it right. She um, is picky, man. I heard her – tear up a ranch dressing recipe one time where <laughs> eating yeah. salad and then she just like she ripped that apart yeah. it was like she pulled out the herbs with like <laughs> she is picky she's super picky yep and we've been making some great stuff with the meat was that hard for her in the beginning like the deer elk transition like you're bringing it in the f- freezer yeah. and stuff the thought of it was hardest for her right so what I had to do and I think this is true about all game meat is meat needs to be cooked the way it should be cooked for that type of meat. What do you mean? You don't kick you don't cook deer like you would cook a ribeye steak. Okay. That's right. Fair. Yeah. You have to you have to look at the animal and cook it the way it is. So hey, take a take a couple of pheasant breasts, right? If you cook it all the way through till it's done, you can't even chew the thing, right? So that's a light oil you know, olive oil, a couple herbs, salt, pepper, sear it quick in a pan and it's very medium rare, you'll never have a better meal in the world. Um, and so taking a little bit of time, and there's a lot of knowledge out there to say, okay, I've got this cut of meat. How should it be prepared? I did something. Um, it's called asabuco. 
Steve Ranella talks about all the time. I actually kept, with this deer I shot this last fall, I kept as everything I could on it because I'm like, I'm going to try and use every bit of this animal that I can. So I kept the deer shank, which is the lower part of the leg. It's almost un- inedible because it's just, that's the muscle that they run with, right? And um, froze it. I brought it out, cut it up into three-inch discs, put it in a slow cooker, actually ended up doing a, it's, it's a similar recipe that I, you'd use for a beef short rib. And real quick, you're cutting through the bone with those discs? Through the bone. So the bone, the disc is actually the meat surrounded by the bone. So it looks almost like a donut, right? And you're placing these things down in your Dutch oven, um, and you do a braised recipe on it. Um, and I actually did these, this last one inside my, um, what's that, the super pot? Was that the quick pot? Oh, Super Instapot. Pot. Instapot. There we go. I can never get the name right. I did them in the Instapot with a, with a braised recipe. Um, those things came out so tender. The meat was like the best ribeye meat you could just peel off. Wow. So beautiful. And it's myself, my wife, and um, we have a foreign exchange student for the year fighting over the last piece of meat in the pot, right? I mean, it's just like, no, that's mine. The forks are flying, right? That's cool. And um, so finding the way to cook it. But if you cook that same deer shank on uh, on a grill and just grill it quick, you can even chew it. Oh, yeah. You have to get those tendons and those harder sinews to, they, to, to get them to... Uh, soften it takes a slow it takes a certain way to cook what's your like all-time favorite game cut how to make like what's your last meal my last meal we it's got to be elk i love elk meat anything on the elk there's always you know you got the back strap and you got the tenderloins and those are amazing but man a good elk slow cooked roast love it just peel it apart Mm, it's like a tri-tip kind of vibe right I love, oh, man. There's so many good things you can do. And people talk about it's gamey. And what I think they're really saying is it tastes different than beef. Or they're saying, (laughs) I cooked this terribly bad and I can't chew it. But if you get it tender, you get it good, it's amazing. Even like the javelina, people are like, oh, you can't eat a javelina. Javelina I killed last year, amazing. I actually smoked, smoked the hams. Um, They're super lean, so you have to add a little bit of fat, some, some other things into there. Beautiful. Those make amazing fajitas, by the way. A smoked javelina that is then cut up and thrown into havel- into a into a, a fajita mix. Oh my gosh, it's just the best meat for it. That's cool. Yeah, I think everyone's always looking for new recipes because, like, I kind of run out a little bit. I just got the meat eater cookbook though, and I I am so pumped on that thing. The imagery is like half the fun. Yeah, my wife, my my daughter has bought me two of the meat eater cookbooks and I love them. I've gone through most of those recipes. Keeping things fresh and, and introducing it to new family members and stuff. It's, it's such a, it's a big transition for some folks. Yeah. Yeah. So what's on deck that for this year, where, where are you kind of headed towards? What are you placing your bets on? You know, what areas? So Colorado said, no, <laughs> Utah said, no, we did. <laughs> And we're sorry, but we... New Mexico blanketly said no, except for my Barbary sheep tag, which is a cool tag to have. It is a rifle hunt. It's a February hunt. Um, The Barbary sheep, I'm excited about hunting that. The last time I hunted that, I did not have a tag. I went with a friend. I just went with him to help glass and carry if if he shot something, Um, which is a lot of fun. If if you've got someone that's listening that is not sure about whether they want to be a hunter, find someone and say, hey, let me put a backpack on. Whatever you shoot, I'm going to help you haul out. 
And you will learn a lot just doing that. Throw a pair of binoculars on, get a good pair of optics and a backpack and go out and head out there. Um, so the Barbary sheep, I'm pretty excited about that. I'm also just put in for an Idaho oh. uh, deer hunt. And nice. there was two options there. One's a rifle and one's a, one's an archery. Um, those were a li- limited draw, I think is what Idaho calls them. Um, I'll be able to hunt that with my brother. Um, Any Arizona? I The deer Arizona tags are... Uh, our deadline is this next week, so I'll put in for a deer tag there again. Yeah. And I last year was the first year I ever hunted Arizona, and it was one where I'm like, I'm going to start building points there because I'm tired of getting declined in my own home state. <laughs> and uh, so I said, this is where I'd like to go hunt, and it was actually just south uh, southeast of Kingman, Arizona. I put in for it, and I actually drew it. I was like, oh, wow, I got it. So I went and hunted. So I'd like to put in there again. I've kind of, after, after seven or eight days of kicking around in the woods there, I kind of feel like I know the area. That's another thing to think about for for the new hunters is if you can, try and hunt a place more than once. You talk about where you've harvested your does. You know the area because you you spent time there. You kicked around there. You know the patterns. You kind of know where they're at. That's a big deal. It's a chessboard. I mean, I know those plays back and forward. I know. I mean, I get to the point where I'm going in trimming branches to encourage trail movement, you know, like – I'll, I'll go trim, you know, in the spring. And I invest so much in, in my areas. And I, I just love it. I mean, it's like cultivating this public mm-hmm. land. And, you know, it, there's a lot of pride to it. It's not, I don't know, it's interesting when you do kill a deer in, in, in an area like that because of all the months that went into it. And it's just this whole thing. But it's not like... Oh, I, I killed a deer and it was successful. It's like, I also did other things for the area that was good. Yeah. And I think something that's interesting and has been true for me, and I think that's probably true for you too, is that that area where you harvest an animal almost becomes sacred. Like, this is a special place to me. There was that interaction with an animal, a taking of life to feed my family, and there's an emotional thing there, and everybody reacts differently to that. But when you talk about people seeking where to go hunt from others, that's why people don't give away their honey holes. They're hard-earned. you got to take time. You spend a lot of time in the field. And when you do, it's your space, right? And where I harvested that deer this last year, I fully expect another deer to grow up in that space because the habitat's right. That area is good for that deer to be there. There'll be another one there in a year to come, right, two years to come. Yeah, I had a cool little interaction with my son. We were riding bikes up in the area where I hunt, and I had my binoculars on my chest, and... We stopped. We were just kind of catching our breath a little bit. And I said, Beckham, look, look at those four, you know, deer coming through. And I said, they'll do that. That that is very part of the chess game. And he's watching. He's like, really? Where are they going? I said, okay, they're going to cut up this and do that. I mean, I read it like a Mm -hmm. book. And if I don't get anything out of that area or something happened, whatever, it was such a cool moment to share with somebody else. I'm kind of a loner when I hunt. I just hunt alone. But I think my goal this year is I've got to get around more people. I actually enjoy hunting by myself. My wife gets a little nervous. I actually bought one of those in-reach minis this last year, and and she calmed down quite a bit about it. But I've hunted multiple times. I remember I had an archery, January archery deer hunt in in New Mexico, Unit 17, great unit. And um, I pulled into where I was camping, set up my my tent, and I had my truck and my little flatbed trailer and a four-wheeler, and... and, um, I parked there, and I was there for the whole hunt. I didn't even move my truck, and it snowed one, one night. The first day, there's no snow. The second day, 
two feet of snow, which is pretty weird for New Mexico. One day I'm coming back to my truck mid-afternoon, and there's a ranger, and she's like, is this your truck over here? Like a, a game warden, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's my truck. And she's like, I've come by every day to try and find out who's out here. I'm afraid someone had died or whatever because I hadn't moved my truck. I'm like, well, I'm still hunting the area, right? I'm hunting that peak, hunting that peak. And um, so there's something about just having that time on our own. But I was only 6 or 10 miles from town. It wasn't terrible, all right? Um, I was confident with my abilities. But then I really do enjoy hunting with people. Why do you like hunting alone? I like the concept of I thought through the process, and when I'm successful, I did all those parts and pieces. Like this, the deer hunt I did last year in Arizona, I was by myself. I had I'd invited a couple of people, but work just didn't work out, and they, they just couldn't make it. And it was a long drive over there, and I ended up hunting my, by myself. And it was on the fifth day when I when I, when I harvested this deer, and um, talk about the range of emotions, right? Yeah. This sucks. I'm out of here. Okay, I'll, one more day. Okay, one more hour. Well, maybe they're over this hill, right? And I even got to the point on day three, everywhere I was going, I was kicking into quail, right? And you can hunt quail at the same time, but I took my shotgun. So after I couldn't find deer after the day three, I just really struggling, super thinking there. I'm like, fine, I'm going to go hunt quail. Got my shotgun out. I couldn't find a quail all afternoon. <laughs> I'm like, I've been kicking in these quail all day. So at the end of that day, I'm like, this this is done. I'm done with this. That next evening is when I kicked in. I finally got to where I found some deer, right? And I said, okay, I'm coming back tomorrow. This is my last day I'm going to hunt this because I'm just done. I had four or five days left on the tag. It's a pretty long tag in Arizona. And... um and that second evening after getting into where they were at, that's when I harvested the deer. The funny thing, my wife, you know, she's getting my griping in the evenings on the phone or texting, whatever. And uh, I, I got the animal, had to haul it out, get it back to camp. About 9 o'clock at night, it's dark. Because I shot it, it was 20 minutes before dark. Right? I had time to gut it and then drag it down off the hill. And um, I text my wife. I said, I'm coming home tomorrow morning. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry it didn't go the way you wanted to. And yeah, well, maybe next year, da 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 and the next tech picture I sent her was all the pictures of the animal I nice. harvested. And she's like, what, you jerk? You know, <laughs> I'm still coming home tomorrow. Uh, but then I spent till 1 in the morning, you know, cutting it up and putting it put in a cooler. That was a that was an interesting one. Man, I remember you calling me, and I was just hanging on everywhere. I was so excited. <laughs> Finally worked. <laughs> Don't you just feel like you float off the mountain? Like, I feel like I'm carried. Like, the adrenaline is so intense when you're alone. Because I feel like when you look at those, uh, like, Alaskan tribes, and they have dedicated hunters, you know, who go harvest meat for the, the tribe. I feel this weird primitive connection with that when I'm alone. Like, yeah. I'm out here. My wife's at home. She's doing her thing. And, well, my wife's not interested in it, and that's fine. But everyone's got, like, got their roles and stuff. And, man, there's just this mantle you feel. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me, too, that when I'm by myself, I actually think I'm a better hunter. Really? From the perspective of when I'm in a group, and I love hunting with my buddies that I hunt with regularly. It's it's part of the the success of the hunt is just being with them. But I feel like when I'm hunting with others, there's kind of this like, well, let's talk about what we want to do and let's go do this. And I think I make different decisions when it's just mine to make. Does that make sense? Yeah, I actually experienced that working out with a group of guys in the gym. And these guys are okay. You know, they're good and they're doing their little workouts and following the app and stuff. And 
I just got to this point where I'm like, you guys aren't getting any better. You're just coming in here checking boxes. And I started to pull away. And it was funny because I tracked my body fat percentage and it, I decreased it by pulling away from this group. Good group of guys. I still see them. No offense, whatever. I just, I do elevate a little bit differently uh, because we are the average of, you know, five people. But the sum of the five people, the average of the five people we spend the most time with. And with with hunting alone, yeah, it's fun to just make those quick decisions like, eh, I'm going over here. It's almost similar in a lot of ways to when you first are training for whatever your vocation is. And you've got someone that's teaching you what your job is, right? And you're like, oh, yeah, I got this. And the second you're on your own to do it by yourself, you're like, uh, what did he say? How do I do this? And all of a sudden, it has to become yours. You're internal, internalizing it. And I'll tell you, after this last deer hunt I had, I feel like I finally, in my mind, in my heart, soul, whatever, put the pieces together. And I don't know that I would have done that as quickly with other people there because I would have been relying on their skill and their knowledge. And, you know, I'll go into a certain area and my one buddy's like, this is very deery, this part. There's, there's got to be deer. I can, I can just feel it, you know, and I'm like, okay. I believe you. Let's go. Let's go shoot one, right? And um, but when you have to f- put that together yourself, there are lessons that are indelibly imprinted in your mind because you're like, I thought through that. I I put myself into the role where I can think, not think like them, but anticipate, know where they're gonna be, that kind of stuff. Right? On your own. On your own, and that's to me more long-lasting knowledge than working with a group of boys heading down the road or whatever, you know. I also think, too, when I wake up and that alarm goes off and, you know, I'm hunting the Wasatch Front. So, you know, I got to get up early and get out and then I can kind of get back for a half a day of work. You know, I kind of whatever. But I'll tell you, when that alarm goes off and I'm like, oh, what's the temperature outside? You know, and I'm like (laughs) thinking to myself. Is anyone counting on me? Nah. And that's hard. I mean, that accountability. But that's also something, too, that I like recommending to people is like if you are going to go alone building up that muscle memory of like, I am counting on myself. And it starts just with that little habit of you get out of bed, yeah. you get in the truck, you go. And I, I had a, I had a really rough season of that where I was like, Oh, but I just, it was funny though, man, you get up on those mountaintops and the sun's coming up and you're getting in the zone and everything. And you're just sitting there like it's seven, uh, you know, it's seven Oh five or it's seven. I'd be in bed right now and I wouldn't be seeing what these deer are doing right now, or I wouldn't be experiencing this. And to feel that dynamic, I think is really important because it drives you to keep going out. Yeah. I would imagine most hunters and I could be wrong about this, but probably most hunters that have done it enough have had that morning where they couldn't get out of bed. It was a hard day the day before and they finally got up and going, and they realized that they really lost their hunting day because they slept in a half hour too long, right? By the time you get out there, you miss, the, you miss that opportunity to be there before them. You've bumped them. You've done whatever. And that's enough to kind of kick you in the teeth. I um, Because of my life and career, being an adult, a father, all that kind of stuff, I am forced to be an early riser for my job. I'm not naturally an early riser. But I've built the love for hunting to where like hunting and skiing i can get up early for those right yeah (laughs) those types of things right um but you do you just say hey this is important and you get up and you get going it's cold it's dark um 
I would caution people about hunting on their own. I know my wife is probably right when she says she gets nervous me going out by myself. But I think the inReach and the spot messenger, the it's probably saved a lot of marriages, you think? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's it's cheap, right? I mean and I've got the plan where it allows me to turn the inReach on or off when I need it. Oh, it's like yeah. thirty bucks a year, I think, and then you pay seventeen or eighteen bucks a month. But you just use it the months you need. That was been pretty neat. And it tracks where you're at and it links to your phone. It's there's some peace of mind there. So basically this last this last deer hunt it was hey, I'm heading out. Hey, I'm back back to camp, you know, and those are pretty good for my wife. Yeah, I've got the spot messenger and yeah, that reassurance and even that red little button, you know. I watch a lot of that alone show. Mm. It's like <laughs> Like, yeah. I'm, I'm calling to tap out. Yes, I'm serious. I can't move my legs. Yes, I can see the bone sticking out of my skin. <laughs> I can't tell you that through this little thing, but I'm just going to hit the red button. Yeah. No, that's cool. That's some good tips, though, because, uh, you know, people, that's the hard part, too, is guys will tell me, like, oh, I want to go bow hunting. And I'm like, do you? Do you like, really? Do you really? Because <laughs> like, this is what we're going to do, yeah. and a lot of it is unpredictable. First, you're going to drop $2,000 of equipment. Yeah. Minimum. Then you're going to spend lots of gas money. You're going to get up early. You're walking terrible, terrible terrain. And at the end of the day, you're going to walk home and say, I got nothing. And we're going to match camo. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever recognize, I just, I think I see this, you know, so hunters are this, you know, the picture of hunters are like these big tough guys, right? But they're so vain. Like, no, I'm a ki- I'm a Kuyu. Or, oh my gosh. Or I'm a King's camo. Dude, the Kuyus. Or, the Kuyu And guys. I love it too. I love their camo. Yeah, I want to yeah. buy it. it I'm, I'm totally jonesing for it. <laughs> I, I'm the same way, but we're like these tough hunters, but it's no longer like the flannel jacket and the jeans and the, and the, and the fire, firefighter boots. It's like this fashion show out on the mountains. And there's science behind it. I get it. I'm not bagging on it. I love it too. But the first time I bought some expensive camel, because talking about going out hunting and how expensive it is, for years it was literally um, army surplus camel, and I hunted with that for years, and it worked. Well, I don't know if it didn't work. I didn't shoot very much, so maybe it didn't work. But I finally, this last couple of years, I've got to where I've got a little extra money, you know, a little more disposable income, and it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to buy a pair of pair of pants. And... Um, this last pair of pants I bought were the um, Sitka, I don't know, but they got the knee pads in them. Oh, it's money. When you're trying to crawl in to get to something and you're not getting cactus and goat heads in your kneecaps, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I like the tight-fitting black Ovis pants. They just have this kind of very slim cut. And they're just a dark, like a light or darker brown. Nothing special, no weird prints or anything. And it's like... And I have this theory that, like, when I'm tromping around and taking shots and stuff, they can't see me waist down, please. You look like a stump. That's what I figure. <laughs> that my legs are the stump and my arms are the tree. Hey. It's perfect. And when you pull back, it's like this branch. Well, it's interesting because they're like, you got to have all this camo. It's got to be just perfect. And then you go watch, like, Steve Rinell or one of them. Like, he's just wearing a pair of tan pants. Yeah. That's all he's wearing. They're probably Carhartts. Totally. No, I'm I'm with you there. I'd like to do some old vintage camo or something, just kinda like shake it up. Or just yeah. go out with a flannel. Like a red and black flannel. See what happens. I I can I can take my bow for a walk with camo or without <laughs> and be just as successful. <laughs> I just gotta shake up my selfies because that's all I'm tagging out on on those days. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you really good camo after wearing it. And it's just been a couple of years since I finally had the money to do that. 
there's some function there. Having vent sides that you open up so you're you're able to maintain your temperature so you're not getting all sweaty. I mean, oh, there's yeah. there's some value there. They're well thought out. It still hurts me to pay the money they want for it though. I like the pocket. I've got this pocket thing where I slide my rangefinder, and I actually don't put my rangefinder on my chest. I just have this weird thing. It's kind of like a gun for me, where it's like, it's like an open carry gun, yeah. and I'm like, boom, draw. Like pulling out my rangefinder to snag a, a distance is part of me pulling back, yeah. if that makes sense. Like yeah. it's all part of that routine because sometimes it happens fast. It's got to be accessible or it's not useful. It's a worthless piece of weight if you don't have it easily accessible. And mine's usually my right side pocket. And I've got a place for it in my pack, but I can't reach it and it's a bad spot. Oh, yeah. And then I like have this very slim down Vortex pack for my binos now. Um, I got rid of all the like the bigger yeah. Badlands. It's just the super slim. I love it. I don't know. It's, it's fun to change up systems every now and again. But what's yeah, sure. uh, to to wrap up here? What's been a really big game changing piece of gear for you that was like, oh, that's sweet. That's a great question. You know what piece of gear I've had that I've used more than anything else? So I've got an Eberstock backpack, and I bought it when I was a poor student, and that three hundred fifty dollars must have been might have been a million dollars, right? But I saved and saved and saved, and I think my dad slipped me a hundred bucks to help pay for it. <laughs> and stuff. And I've had that on more hunts than anything else. I actually went to a Mystery Ranch backpack this year, this last year, because I needed a little more volume. Um, and I like the way you can pull that apart from the frame so you can pack the pack the meat between the pack and the frame. And there's a little more modular, and everybody's doing that now. Um, the pack, though, is really that thing, right? Um, it's your, It's got to fit you right. It's got to carry what you need. It's got to be accessible and usable. It's got to make a good pillow when you're like in your afternoon nap time. I mean, it's the important stuff, right? You really got to have a good backpack. So that's a big one there. And then I can't speak highly more. I can't speak highly enough about the right optics. So I had my first optics I had were, and, and don't laugh, but they were literally from Big Five. They were fifty dollars, forty nine ninety nine Bushnell ten by fifties, and um, I spent a lot of time looking through those and not finding animals. And then I stepped up to a better pair of optics, and I'm like, oh. There's a deer. Oh, there's a deer. Oh, hey, there's two more. Oh, there's an elk, right? That one has spots. That one has spots. I mean, and and nothing wrong with. There's just something about it. And I've got I've got this pair of Vortex. Um, I I'm, I'm embarrassed to say how much I spent on them this last year. My wife is embarrassed to to know how much I spent on them. But they're. Did they're you so tell nice. her the right amount, like the actual amount? I I did. I we're 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 pretty. F- we're pretty honest in all that we do, and it's my allowance and her allowance. We've got our own, right? And she's yeah, like, you fair. spent how much money on a pair of binoculars? <laughs> $1,600, right? But I'll tell you what, optics, optics, optics. And and the advice you'll read and people will tell you is buy the best you can afford. And when you do that, you'll be happy. And I've done that over the years, and as I've gotten to where I've got a little more disposable income getting older, I, I'll upgrade that stuff. I've been enjoying the Badlands uh, 2200 pack, back to packs, and it's got this double access thing. There's access at the shoulder straps and access on the outside. I love it because it's like sometimes I want to get in there. Sometimes, you know, I just love that. Uh, And then to put the meat on, that meat, those meat straps are just epic. I mean, that thing gets big and small. Like it's got such good range. 
if you when you find a piece of equipment that has been well thought out, it's worth every penny. It really is, right? The first time you have a full big backpack and you're like, I got to get to my first aid kit, which is buried under everything else. I got to pull everything out of my backpack. You're like, I, there's got to be a better way, right? Yeah, and sometimes, like, it's fun to have gear. And sometimes the gear is like, oh, that thing helped me do this. Like, I have this weird relationship with my Havilon knife where I'm like, dude, that thing is surgical, you know? And I just and I just have this thing where it's, it's always a Havilon. It's just my thing. Yeah. And I've tried other knives, and I'm like, oh, you know, I'll bring the... I don't know. And it's just like, but it's okay. And it makes it part of the experience and the ritual. And uh, I think that's probably how the old, you know, Native Americans had it. It's like they had these arrowheads, right? And it's providing for them. They probably had a little bit of gear junkie in them. But (laughs) this is my favorite arrowhead. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you find something that works for you. You find a broadhead that works for you. You find an arrow that works for you. Um, and, and, And actually, I think that bull that I shot and didn't recover I think part of that was the arrowhead I was using at the oh. time I, I just wasn't happy with it and I don't I, don't, I can't even tell you what it was it was a, it was a mechanical one and I just wasn't happy um, with it um, and I've gone to a different one now um, and so that stuff's important but something that functionally does what you need is, is it's just worth it you know? yeah take the time and if you and if you don't have the funds which that's hard hunting it gets expensive my advice is save another two months to buy the right thing yeah. and just eat eat bologna for two months and quit eating out you know eight bucks a day at mcdonald's or whatever and say this is more important to me than that and um yeah don't rush it maybe and just buy if if you can get one quality piece of um hunting equipment per year and you take care of it i've got totes with all my hunting gear in it i put it away at the t- end of the season it's ready to go I use it for years, and it's good quality stuff. And then, okay, this next year, and last year was the year where I'm like, I'm gonna step up my my binocular optics, and I did that last year, save for it, and it was, it was worth doing. Right? That's cool. Well, thanks for uh, sharing all your wisdom. It's always fun. Yeah, Steve's the guy that I call. Like, you're probably one of the first people I call when I like have a cool experience. Not just when I harvest, but like when I'm like, dude, they did this and I did that, and tango you know steve's one of my steve's one of my first calls we we go back and forth and it's fun so i i'm in the same boat you are coming off the mountain after i shot that deer this last year oh man i couldn't get to service quick enough and i'm like <laughs> send send i'm trying to send text the pictures out to you everybody to you and my wife and send it wouldn't send i'd get clear to the gas station and oh in kingman before it finally send i'm like golly it's been an hour drive down this crappy dirt road you know <laughs> trying to Anyway, but I feel the same way. Um, having a good network of people to talk to and share the failures, share the successes, all that, right? Even where we're in totally different states, and to think of how much we've talked on the phone and like helping, you know, it's helped me a ton. And so sometimes if you're new, you, they don't even have to be in the right state. You don't even have to go out with them. Yeah. There's so much benefit there. So. Anyway, thanks so much for joining. Hey, this has been episode 26, First Generation Bow Hunter. If you're a first generation bow hunter, you're obviously in the uh, the right place. All right, we're closing the gap on how you learn how to be a successful bow hunter, however you define success. So thanks so much. Please jump on Apple Podcasts. I say this on every episode, and no one's listening to me. Go write a review. Seriously. 
I need reviews on there. I'm desperate now. I've honestly thought about doing that probably a hundred times, and I've not yet once done it. Okay, so if you've heard it... I'm not unwilling. I just haven't done it. So, like, okay, (laughs) we're at 26 now, so if it takes a hundred, I got to do this 75 more times? Is that what you're telling me? Does Apple give you credit for me thinking about doing it? No. Okay. I will Venmo you fifty cents. I'm gonna do it. Th- I'm gonna do it this weekend. I'm Fine. gonna. I'm gonna give you a review because well, I've one. listened to your podcast and I know you and I've exper- I've enjoyed the podcast. So if you're like Steve, be like Steve and and go uh, take a moment, drop a rating on Spotify. I'm always doing those polls. It's actually fun to see the polls when you guys vote. I, I really like that and uh, that's a good time too. So hey, good luck out there and uh, tune in on the next episode. See ya.